If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament. And as of today, this will be week number 44. And if you are joining us for the first time, you're very welcome. And as of last Sunday, we accumulated 25 and a half hours. Exodus chapter 17, look at verse 1, please. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Ramphadim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So Moses is on the move. He's got a multitude of people with him. The Messiah arrives, and he too has a multitude of people with him, physically and spiritually, and his purpose is to take people far north. And it's always fascinating to me when I think about people such as Moses around this time, 80 plus, in charge of around four and a half million people, excluding livestock, of course, because he was just an ordinary guy. Yes, he had a very privileged upbringing, but for the most part, he was an ordinary guy. He wasn't special or he wasn't doing anything particular when the Lord chose him for service. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journey from the wilderness of sin. So for the Old Testament, Israel is a type of the church. The church, of course, is in the wilderness. We are called out of this world. So therefore, when it says how all of the congregation of the children of Israel, you think of the church, the church is referred to as the congregation. Journey travelled from the wilderness of sin. They're on the move. And like I said last time, sin, or the area called sin, was barren. It was bleak. It was a sort of place where rookie soldiers, marines, sailors, go to cut their teeth to really become experts in their field after their journeys according to the commandments of the Lord. If you love me, keep my commandments. And pitched in Remphedim, or Remphedem, and that word pitched, like pitch down for the night. You go camping, you pitch down for the night. And again, you can't really appreciate this when it comes to anything on a recent scale, but you've got a huge caravan of around three and a half million. And there was no water for the people to drink. I think from memory, 75% of our bodies are water-based. We can go days and days without any food, but we can't go days and days without water. And of course, there's much uh, imagery when it comes to this uh, description of water. Look at verse 2. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? So for the Old Testament, if you were to criticize, if you were to critique a prophet, you were indirectly criticizing, critiquing the Lord. For the New Testament, if you were to criticize, if you were to critique an apostle, you were criticizing, you were critiquing the Lord. Because Old Testament prophets spoke with authority from the Lord, and the same would be true for New Testament apostles. The prophets of prophets, the apostle of apostles, the Lord Jesus Christ, being very God and very man, had every uh, credential given to him. He would tell you from the book of Matthew how all authority had been given to him, and he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So very clearly and very plainly, if you were to critique, as I say, Moses, Joshua, and her for the Old Testament, or Jesus, Peter, and John for the New Testament, and of course Paul as well, you were and you would be critiquing the Lord. For today, if a saved man or a saved woman gives you the gospel, speaks to you, and you refuse, reject such a message, you are also refusing, rejecting a message from the Lord. Because Almighty God lives inside of us. People did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. 
literal water of course. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Why give me a hard time? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? So again, if you were to see Moses, or if you were to listen to the mouth of Moses, the words that came out of his mouth, not always, but on many occasions, were the words from the Lord. If you were to see the Messiah, if you were to listen to the words of the Messiah, every word that came out of his mouth came from the mouth of the Lord. You were told that you wouldn't, uh, you couldn't, you shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Three, and the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? So for the New Testament, on multiple occasions, the apostles of the Lord were critical of him, would question him. They weren't only behaving like children at time, but they were behaving like carnal Christians, carnal characters. And he would have to rebuke them. And for the, New, and, uh, for the Old Testament, Moses is dealing with the same sort of a thing. Keep your hand there and go to John chapter 4. So Exodus 17, 1, 2, and 3 is dealing with literal water, uh, literal land, literal salvation, if you will. Moses is a type of the Messiah. And from John chapter 4, uh, John chapter 4, cast your eye over verse 14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Four times, four times water is found in verse 14. And of course from John 4.14 it is spiritual water. But from Exodus 17, 1, 2 and 3, water also appears four times. So quite simply, for the Old Testament, the Jews needed literal water, along with their animals, of course, to survive. New Testament, we need spiritual water to survive. We won't grow unless we feed on the Word of God. We don't need the Word of God to be saved. We don't need the Word of God to tell us that we are sinful people. Our consciences do that for us. But to grow, to be victorious, we need the Word of God. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, like once saved, always saved. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Go back to the book of Exodus. So the imagery, the types, the shadows are too many, too numerous to really count. But time after time, Moses and his men, Messiah and his men are going to come up against it. Moses, like I say, for the most part, was an ordinary man. Yes, he went to the best schools in Egypt. Contrast that to the schools that Jesus went to. Moses was very eloquent, very educated. The Lord Jesus Christ was obviously educated and, uh, and eloquent, but a different sort of a background. Peter and John get themselves arrested in the book of Acts. And the snobs, the scribes, the scholarly snobs said this. They said, do we know those guys? They are fishermen. Bit of a put down, you see. And unlike us, they don't know letters. They're not scholars, you see. So therefore, it's fascinating for me when I look at people like Moses or the Messiah, Peter, Paul and John, or Joshua, Daniel from the Old Testament. And I'll put it this way, that the chances are, if you are a Bible reader, you can relate to certain characters in the scripture. You might be desperate for children, and you might look at someone like Hannah back in the Old Testament, who waited for a long time to conceive. And when she was absolutely broken, she went into the house of the Lord. And to cut a long story short, she would dedicate her son 
to the Lord, being Samuel, of course, and the Lord saw that, was very pleased with that, gave her a son, and then down the line gave her many more children. You could probably relate to that, I would imagine. For uh, the New Testament, you might look at someone like Paul or uh, John, never married, never had any children. You can relate to such a person. You might be able to relate to someone like Peter, who was still connected to his mother-in-law. And who knows, he may have had an awful mother-in-law, a real nag. But the point is this, everyone in the New Testament, everybody in the Old Testament, consists of characters that we can all relate to. Because the Lord will choose himself ordinary people, rich or poor, married or unmarried. But what he won't do, fascinatingly enough, especially for the New Testament, is choose himself anyone from organised religion. Not interested. Paul may be the exception. Of course, he'd have to, you know, he would have to break Paul to get him to follow him. But the 12 apostles, from Peter to Judas all from non-religious backgrounds. And go back to the Old Testament, every prophet, excluding perhaps Ezekiel and one or two others, most of those gentlemen were just ordinary characters, farmers, self-employed people, so on and so forth. Um, And it's worth reminding ourselves of such a fact. Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17, look at verse 4. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying... What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. David would say the same sort of a thing as would Joshua. Now the pressure must have been enormous. And I want to say this again. That Moses had been out of Pharaoh's court for a period of time. Was out of favour with the Egyptians for a period of time. Was up in years when the Lord would call him and commission him for service. For the New Testament you've got the apostles for the most part. Ordinary, self-employed gentlemen, I would suggest, probably lower middle class or upper working class. Not scholarly, uh, for the most part. If you saw them on the streets, you'd walk straight past them. And then all of a sudden, they are serving the creator of the universe. They're going to travel land and and sea to preach the gospel, to get people saved. They would do miracles like nobody has ever done. And the pressure would be absolutely enormous. And time after time, the Apostle Paul was... On his knees, literally broken. He was down, but he wasn't out. And he would rejoice in his trials and tribulations. So these gentlemen were not supermen. And the women in scripture were not super women. Or supergirl, I think it was. They weren't super people. They weren't uh, celebrities. They weren't superhumans. They were ordinary men, ordinary women, with their failures, with with their weaknesses. Only one man walked the face of the earth who was sinless and was able to overcome death, taste death for every man, go into the ground and after three days resurrect himself out of the tomb. You try and beat that sometime. You try and go into the ground. In fact, you allow yourself to be killed. You go into the ground and after three days you raise yourself up from the dead. You can't do it. When Muhammad died, some of his disciples thought that he would come up out of the ground. They thought that he would mirror the Messiah. Never happened. You go to Mecca today, he's buried, dead and buried. If even existed, of course. Verse 5. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand, and go. Rod of the Lord. Rod of God. So the rod of God is a type of the word of God, being the sword of the Lord. Of course, for the Old Testament, you've got Moses picturing a shepherd, with a rod, with a stick of some kind, so people could see uh, where he was and what he was doing. 
some years ago we were doing outreach in London, Hammersmith, and there was quite a few of us, and it was in the height of summertime, and at that time I was wearing a white baseball cap. And I said to the group, just look out for the white baseball cap in case we get lost. You know what? It worked. People could see me in the distance. They weren't lost. And we all were able to stay together based on my white baseball cap. But for the Old Testament, Moses has a rod, picturing his authority. For the New Testament, the rod becomes the word, the written word of God. Jesus Christ is a living word of God. And therefore, the word of God, the rod of God, is synonymous with the sword of the Lord. Lord said unto Moses, verse 5, Go on before the people. Be a leader, Moses. Lead your people from the front, not from behind. And take with thee of the elders of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ would choose him, 82 men. And out of those, and out of those 82 men, uh, we get the 12. Knock off Judas, you get 11. Add on Matthias, you get 12. Add on Paul, you get 13. Elders of Israel, all men, not women. And thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Going back to earlier chapters. Take in thine hand and go. Go. Gospel. God. Good news. Go. Go, go. So Moses is a natural leader. Whether he likes it or not. Whether he accepted it or not. He was a natural leader. Peter, James and Paul were all natural leaders. Those three giants dominated the early church. Acts chapter 15, you have a church conference, not a council, incidentally. And when those three big guns arrived, you knew that three guys were in town. Go back to 1945, the big three met in Yalta. You had uh, Stalin, you had uh, Churchill, and you also had uh, Roosevelt, who was later replaced by Truman. Truman thank you. And when those three gentlemen got together, people were, uh, people were listening. They were making notes because those three men dominated the world. Today you have five countries which dominate the world. The permanent five members of the UN Security Council. America, Britain, France, Germany, China. Those five countries could crush any uprising, could put down any unwanted coup, could stop a run on the dollar, the pound, the euro or the yen. But here Moses is working with a group of men. Also, this is very interesting because it doesn't, it doesn't give the impression of the one-man minister. The Lord Jesus Christ could have chosen himself one man to succeed him, if you will. It could have been John, his biological cousin. could have been Peter, but it wasn't. could have been Paul, but it wasn't. Time after time, the apostles spoke about disciples that would come down the line and continue on the work. Not concerning the work of an apostle, but the work of the ministry. So verses 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5 deal with Moses up against it. He's leading a multitude of people around the Middle East, like I say, en route to the promised land. Include the animals, of course. You've got the enemy watching from a distance. A picture of the world, of course. New Testament, the Messiah takes his men all around Israel and Syria and elsewhere for three and a half years. And again, the enemy is watching such from a distance. The similarities are numerous. So numerous that we can't count them all. Look at verse 6 please. Behold I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt smite the rock. And there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sights of the elders of Israel. Rock smite it. Drink from it. 
Again, you think of how the rock is a type of Christ, smitten, Old English for strike, smack, hit. The Lord Jesus Christ was smitten by the Lord, was also smitten by the Pharisees, hit once, and as a result, dies once for the sins of the world. Go to First Peter, please. First Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 18, if you will. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by fire. Christ also hath once, 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 suffered for the sins, the just for the unjust. He dies once on the cross. He is buried once in the tomb. He is resurrected once from the ground, that he might bring us to God, being a mediator, of course, being put to death in the flesh, literally, but quickened, made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, in the ground, like hell, like Hades, like the pit, like Gehenna, I mean physically under your feet, and today all of the unsaved are still there, the saved are in heaven, but the unsaved are still there, incidentally, a saved person who dies goes straight to be with the Lord, there's no soul sleep, you'd be surprised how many Christians get this muddled up, the body sleeps, not the soul, Paul told you how he was aiming to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Which sometime were disobedient, when once a long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Fallen angels, demons, having intercourse with women, producing offspring, half human, half demonic. While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The family of Noah board the ark, and of course the ark is a type of Christ. It says eight souls, doesn't say eighteen doesn't say 80 it says how eight souls were saved you were told from matthew 7 13 14 how few are going to find the narrow gate few but here christ dies once for the sins of the world go back to the book of exodus so moses was told to strike the rock and the orders of the lord the commandments of the lord have to be followed to the letter going back to man shouldn't be living by bread alone like physical stuff, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And you ask me, is it easy? No, it is incredibly difficult. Thou shalt smite the rock, middle part of verse 6. You will hit the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So one more time. The rock, Old Testament, is a type of Christ for the New Testament. The rock for the Old Testament must be smitten, must be hit, must be assaulted, if you will. Jesus Christ was physically assaulted by the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and other leaders uh, found in the Gospels. But he's also hit spiritually by the Lord. You are told from the book of uh, Isaiah how it pleased the Lord to bruise the Son. Same sort of a language. So therefore Christ dies once for the sins of the world. 1 Peter 3.18. Moses hits the rock once. Elsewhere, in the book of Numbers, he'd be told to speak to the rock. And what does he do? He hits it twice. And as a result, he loses his part in the promised land. In fact, go to the book of Hebrews. This is very serious. 
Hebrews chapter 10, this chapter cripples Christians. And you ask me why? Well, for the most part, Christians are weak. Christians have weak consciences. Christians don't read the Bible like they should do. And I've seen so many preachers over the years from all denominations cripple Christians when they hit Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching, second advent, tribulation saints. But for the first century saints that were reading this, in essence they're being told to stand firm, don't depart, from the Lord. Don't go back to the law. John 6, 6, 6. Many of his disciples walked no more with him. And I've heard people really have a time of it with this chapter. I've seen Calvinists. I've seen Charismatics. I've seen Protestants. I've even seen Catholics trying to interpret this piece of scripture. And every single time, all of those guys do the same thing. They teach conditional security. Look at verse 26. Now here's the one that really cripples people. 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. And they say this, if you sin willfully, after you are saved, and don't repent, you lose your salvation and go straight to hell. They are lying. The context from Hebrews chapter 10, if you are interested, is dealing with the Jews. Being made aware that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. Being invited to receive him. And then turning around and saying, well, we'll pass on it. We shan't have this man to reign over us. He says he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says he is the Lord of the temple. He says before Abraham was, I am. He says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Who does this guy think he is? We know his mother. We know his father, being a stepfather, of course. We know his brethren. We shan't have this guy to be our boss, as it were. That's the context. If we, the children of Israel, sin, like completely reject the atonement, willfully, continually, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Well, absolutely. You can't save yourself. There's no other atonement. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. There's a fear, there's a dread, there's a sense of damnation. In other words, am I really living it? I'm now a Jew, I've gone back to the law. I have rejected the lawgiver. I have rejected the Messiah. And now I am trying to live it, like they say. But deep, deep down, there's a sense of dread, because they know that they can't live it. 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much so a punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden under foot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Go back to Exodus. In a nutshell, what these verses are all teaching simply is how the rock in the Old Testament was to be hit once. Christ dies once. You receive him once. You get born again once. You are baptized physically once. I was told of a story a few days ago of a group who went to Israel and were baptized seven times in the River Jordan. 
That's a joke. I went to Israel maybe 15 years ago or thereabouts. I got baptised once and that's it. As did Patrick. There's no do it again, 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 do it again. You get baptised once. You are born again once. Your name goes into the book of life once. You are predestinated to be conformed to the image of God once. You cross from death unto life once. Christ dies once. He is buried once. He tastes death for every man once. Now I say that because if you are a Roman Catholic, allow, allow me to say this. You may or may not know this, but priests, every time they perform the mass, they re-crucify Christ afresh. And I've had Catholics deny this to me. And they say, no, we don't, we don't do that. And they lie, but I know what they do. The priest is able to bring him down from heaven, so they believe, and break the bread, break the wafer, picturing the breaking of the Lord's body. And they offer it up. And when they offer it up, the altar boy behind the priest rings the bell. And that was me when I was a teenager. The priest then gives out the communion and they all flock up to receive it. Sometimes they're really spiritual, really holy. They get the wine being the blood of Christ. But the point is this, the priest is re-crucifying Christ afresh and as a result is in violation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm going to suggest this, that the priest and priests that do this every time they go through their mass service cannot be redeemed unless, of course, they repent. They are killing themselves spiritually and they are killing their congregations spiritually as well. That is rank idolatry. It's also contempt, absolute contempt for what Christ has done for all of us. Seven. And he called the name of the place Massah and Mirabah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So you got Israel, Old Testament, chiding, complaining, murmuring. You got the children of Israel, New Testament, murmuring, chiding, and criticizing the Messiah. Christians do it all of the time. I'm sure that I've done it. I'm sure I've woken up or I've gone to sleep. I'm sure I've had a bad dream. I'm sure I've struggled in this sense or that sense. And I start to complain. It's all worthless. It's all worthless. You are told from 1 Corinthians 10 how the Lord won't tempt you, test you, try you above what you're able to handle. And will always find a way for you to escape it, to bear it. And yet what do we want time after time? A quick fix. Get us out of this mess, Lord. And we start to gripe. We start to complain. We start to backbite. Look at verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Remphidim. So Amalek would be a literal group of people for the Old Testament. And apparently Amalek means iniquity, perverseness and mischief. Now it was an interesting outreach we did in October. We went to different parts of the South and an elderly gentleman approached Patrick, a former Catholic, now an atheist, and he had a lot to talk about. These atheists are very talkative, real chatterboxes, and you give them a banner, they won't hold it, or you ask them to um, take the time to uh, preach their gospel, they won't preach it. In fact, this takes me back to uh, Bernard Shaw, the late atheist, and... Uh, Excuse me, Bertrand Russell was an atheist for many decades, did a lot of damage to uh, the cause of theism and Christianity. But before he died, he slightly had a change of heart. He started to embrace theism. And I thought, how interesting. You've got people around the world today who follow characters like Dawkins and the late Hawkins, and they're very keen to be affiliated with these atheists. And yet one of their forefathers 
had a change of heart before he died. And I thought to myself, I wonder what his disciples would think had they known, if they knew that Bertrand, uh, Bertrand Russell had crossed the street in a roundabout way. I'm not saying he was saved, of course. But this gentleman that came up to Patrick last month was very unhappy with the Amaleks or the Amalites. And he said this, he said, why did the Jews, uh, or why, what was the purpose of the Jews fighting them? Yeah. What else would you expect to do? Look at the text. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel. They came to the Jews. It wasn't the other way around. 1948, the Jews go back into the land. The Muslims attack the Jews. It wasn't the other way around. 1967, the Islamic countries come up against the Jews. It wasn't the other way around. 1975, the Islamic countries come up against the Jews. It wasn't the other way around. The first Gulf War, you've got Saddam firing missiles into Israel. It wasn't the other way around. 2003, second Gulf War, he tries to do it all over again. It wasn't the Jews firing Scud missiles into Iraq. It was Iraq firing Scud missiles into Israel. So therefore, you've got a people on the move, not quite ready for warfare. Like I say, they are being primed and trained up, primed and prepped, as they say, to fight physically and also spiritually. So what else could they do? Sometimes uh, staggers me what people come up to us and tell us on the street. They want to argue about people like the Amaleks, the Amaleks, a pagan group that would sacrifice their own children, would worship demons and devils, would drink the blood of their own children, literally, to demons. And yet somehow that's okay. Somehow Israel should be condemned for defending themselves. Some of these people have lost their minds. But of course, also from verse 8, and it's been said by some very well-known dispensationalists, how Amalek, or Amalites, the Amalites, the Amaleks, is a term for the old nature, mm. your flesh. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian man or a Christian woman, you may have been saved three months, three years, 30 years. It makes no difference. You may have been saved 12 months, 12 years, or 24 years. It makes no difference. You know in your heart of hearts that your old nature is still there. And you are told to put down the old man. You're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are told to renew your mind. So as always, verse 8 has a double application. Then came Amalek, Gentile nation, bandits, barbarians, terrorists, may I suggest, and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a rod of God in mine hand. 10, you've got Moses, you've got Joshua. There's a call to go out to the top of the hill. Rod of God in mine hand. Moses is going to lead the way. The Lord Jesus Christ said to be of good comfort for I've overcome the world. Verse 10 and I'll close. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Jesus takes Peter, Andrew and John to the top of the hill. Moses takes Aaron and her, and also Joshua is found in verse 10, to the top of the hill. Top of the hill, transfiguration. Again, you can't miss it, can you? Moses, Messiah, Aaron, her, Joshua, Peter, James, John, top of the hill. And on one occasion, when the Lord goes up to a high point, the, uh, the devil comes along, 
and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Let the, let the, uh, let the angels of the Lord carry you uh, and take care of you, so on and so forth. And he says, it is written, it is written, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So Joshua, meaning Jesus, incidentally, and of course Joshua, another type of Jesus for the second advent. So Joshua, meaning Jesus, did as Moses, type of God the Father, had said to him, everything that the Lord Jesus Christ said would come via the Father with the anointing of the Holy Ghost, fought with Amalek. Jesus Christ would say how the devil comes, the prince of this world, the prince of the air, and he's got nothing on me, but plenty on you. And Joshua, Jesus did as Moses, God the Father, had said to him, and fought with Amalek, the devil, and Moses, Aaron, and her went up to the top of the hill. So for the Old Testament, physical deliverance, physical fighting, physical deaths, in the millions, I'd imagine, by the time we get through the Old Testament. Or maybe I should revise it down to in the thousands. Second Advent, or just before the Second Advent, before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Millions, and I mean millions, going into the billions are going to be killed, thanks to the Antichrist. But for the Old Testament, physically fighting, physical fights, physical conflicts. New Testament, it is spiritual. So allow me to say this, and I'll close. The rock, again, is a type of Christ. Hit the rock once, Old Testament. Christ dies once for the sins of the world. If you abuse that, if you try to push that beyond its meaning, you become guilty of contempt. And in the UK, if you are found guilty of contempt of court, you go to prison for anywhere up to, I think, seven years. If you become guilty of contempt concerning Christ's atonement, you go to hell. Going back to Hebrews chapter 10, sinning willfully and then disregarding the blood of the covenant, walking over the Son of God, trying to re-crucify him. On top of that, wanting to go back to the law and trying to be saved another way. And John 6.6.6 and also 1 John 2.19 should be read to get a clear reference to that. Hebrews 10.23-29 isn't speaking about anybody today. We've all sinned willfully. I have sinned willfully. You've sinned willfully. Don't kid yourself. But you are told to confess your sins, to remain in fellowship with the Lord, not to be saved again and again and again. The Amaleks, the Amalites, were a wicked bunch of Gentiles. They would clash with Saul, and Saul was told to wipe out every man, woman and child. Of course, he failed to do so, because such people were children of the devil. Perhaps their blood was tainted, going back to what you find over in Genesis 6, 6. It's hard to say. Uh, Exodus 17, 1 to 3, water, literally, literal water, H2O, is mentioned four times. From John 14, 14, spiritual water is found four times. Again, the similarities are numerous. Uh, verse 4, the rod produced blood out of water, which we read about some weeks ago from chapter 7, verse 20. Now it is going to produce water out of a rock. What do they say? You can't get blood out of a stone. Well, Christ certainly could. And finally, the rod of God, verse 9, is a type of the word of God being the sword of the Lord for the New Testament. Joshua, again, is a type of Jesus. Joshua means Jesus. Jesus means Jehovah saves. Moses, in these verses, I will suggest, is a great picture of God the Father. Joshua is a great picture of God the Son. And the rod of God is a great picture of the Holy Ghost. And we'll close it there in verse 10 with Moses and co up on a hill and pick it up next week from verse 11.
Exodus chapter 17, please. Exodus chapter 17. Look at verse 11 again. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So straight away you see the types and shadows. Moses is, of course, a type of the Messiah. The Messiah would say how he has overcome the world, so be of good cheer. At the same time, this will lead into our own walks with the Lord, our own relationships with the Lord. Uh, with the Lord. Came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, the Lord Jesus Christ would say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, that Israel prevailed. For today, we are Israel in a spiritual sense. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So it's like this, really. If you are saved, you have two natures, uh, old nature, new nature. And sooner or later, your old nature is going to rear its ugly head and cause you quite a shock. In fact, this past week, we were in Manchester and a guy walked over to us and he was homeless, somewhat disheveled, but a very gentle sort of a guy, younger than me. And he asked for some food and I said to him, no problem, let's go to such and such a place. And we queued and we queued and we queued. And maybe 15 minutes waiting to be served, we got into a conversation. And to my shock, this chap, younger than myself, told me several things. He said, well, first of all, I'm a Christian. Uh, Secondly, I went to Bible school. And thirdly, I was a missionary to Spain for two years. And I was shocked. I've been doing street work for almost 17 years. And I've never met a homeless missionary. On top of that, a missionary uh, which went overseas, a missionary that spent two years at Bible school. And it turns out that his parents died, and as a result of that, and I am guessing this is what has taken place, he's gone back into his old way of life. I'm going to suggest this, that before he got saved, he was a drug addict, and with the death of his parents, it knocked him sideways. The trauma was too much for him, and he started to backslide. And he told me that he was able to get victory over drugs for four and a half years, but something uh, came along Like I said, it could be the death of his parents, I don't know. And he never got over it, never healed from the trauma. And as a result, he's now a homeless drug addict on the streets of Manchester. On top of that, he's also an alcoholic. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady unto the going down of the sun, So from verse 6, we read about the rock. From verse 12, we are reading about the stone. The Lord Jesus Christ is, of course, the rock of all ages. And therefore, all of these terms, descriptions, rock, stone, denote Moses as a type of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ will say to Simon Peter, Upon this rock will I build my church. Of course, Simon Peter isn't a rock. He is a stone. He is a pebble. The church is built on the prophets and apostles, but Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone himself. Going back to quite simply this, when you sin against God, only God himself can forgive you. If the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't God, he couldn't help you. Moses' hands were heavy, picturing his weakness as a man. The Lord Jesus Christ, as a man, was weak, was tired, was thirsty. As God, he was all-sufficient, didn't need anyone to help him at any time. You were told from John chapter 2 that he knew what was in man and didn't need man to testify of him, do anything for him. And yet what do we do? We, on many occasions, try to help him out. It's like this. You go into a restaurant, you have a nice meal, and the bill comes in, 
and to your shock and horror, not only is it over 200 pounds, 200 dollars, 200 euros, 200 yen, but you left your wallet at home. And there's a sign at the top or in the restaurant by the cash desk. Uh, no payment, uh, you'd be arrested, in essence. And you start to panic. There's no way to deal with this problem. You can't wash up all night, like you see in the old movies. And you start to panic, and they come over several times. Are you going to pay the bill now? It's 200 pounds, it's 200 euros, it's 200 dollars. I mean, pick your currency. You can't cover the bill. You left your wallet at home, you're panicking, and they are wanting to phone the police. They want to have you prosecuted. Because as far as they are concerned, you've had a free meal. And right at the 11th hour, some kind chap steps up, whips out his credit card and says, I'll cover the cost for you. And you say, whoo, that was a close uh, call. And he covers the bill for you. And then outside, you catch up with this very kind gentleman and you say to him, thank you so much, Mr. Such and Such, for covering our bill of around £200. There were several of us sitting at the dinner table, having a nice meal. There wasn't a chance in the world that we could have covered it. And had you not stepped forward, we'd all be in prison right now. We'd be held overnight to appear at the magistrate's court the following morning. And then some idiot says this to the very kind gentleman, I've got a pound in my back pocket. Can I give this towards the cost? I've got a euro in my back pocket. I've got a dollar in my back pocket. Can I give this to you to help cover the cost? Talk about an insult. That man stepped forward, covered your bill, and now you want to pay him back somehow with a dollar, with a euro, with a pound. That's what church people do. They get religion. Sometimes they may be saved, and they start or they attempt to pay back the Lord. You can't pay him back. You can't return the payment that was provided on your behalf. And yet many times that's what people do. We call that Lordship salvation. And they start to put the squeeze on you. They say, well, if you're not living it, you're going to lose it. Or if you're saved, where is the fruit? Are you really living for the Lord? Are you really denying yourself? If you're not really living for the Lord, if you're not really denying yourself, you're not saved. And of course, you assume that people who say that to you are living it themselves. But that goes some way, I suggest, when it comes to people trying to pay for their salvation or pay back the Lord's everlasting offer of salvation. The Church of Rome is notorious for this sort of a thing. They got indulgences, they got purgatory, they got payments for this, payments for that. But here, thankfully, when it comes to Moses, when it comes to Messiah, New Testament, this is all being done on our behalf. His hands were heavy, took a stone, put it under him, and he sat thereon, rock of all ages. I'll build my church upon this stone, upon this rock. Aaron and her stayed up his hands, bitch of the cross. You got three guys on a cross, the Lord Jesus Christ in the middle. The one on the one side and the other on the other side. One thief gets saved, the other does not. Hands were steady, firm, until the going down of the sun, until the close of play. So again, you've got two strands to these verses. Number one, you've got Moses being very much the leader in the driving seat. You've got Messiah being the leader very much in the driving seat. And Moses gets up and he's got a couple of guys with him to lift up his arms. You've got the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up from the earth. And he told you from John chapter 3 that he would be lifted up. And also from John chapter 3... He makes the case and he reminds people that back in the Old Testament, if they took a look at that bronze serpent, they were saved. And it says elsewhere in John that if you saw the Son and believed on him, you were saved. It's faith from beginning to end. And yet tragically, time after time, a good number of people come along and they start to kick at faith alone. They start to kick at grace alone. And they start to put curses on people. 
They start to pray against you. They start to rip you to shreds. And I was thinking about the Mormons. What a ridiculous religion. They say this. They say, well, if you are a Mormon, or if you want to be a good Mormon, first of all, you have to tithe at least 10% to your local uh, temple via the steakhouse. That's their church, of course. And, of course, good Mormons will tithe far more than 10%. They want to out-tithe each other, you see. It's a great honor for them to out-tithe one another. But here's the kick. Here's the joke. You've got these Mormons tithing 10, 15, 20%. And yet the vast majority of Mormons will never get to visit their temple, which they are paying for. Only the super-duper have access to the temple. And, of course, the goal of every Mormon is to become godlike. Well, thankfully, our temple is our own bodies. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We don't need to tithe 10, 15, or 20% to prop up a works-based system. Every church that I can think of, the vast majority of churches that I can think of, evangelical included, fundamental included, they expect you to tithe. And they will come around to your homes if you don't. And I've even seen churches online, and I've read about artic- I've read articles online, where the pastor will start to rebuke, chastise those that have been tight with their money. 13. And Joshua discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Keep your hand there and go to Revelation chapter 19. So you ask me this, you say, so that chap from Manchester this week, James, do you think he was saved? I do. And you say to me, but why is he a homeless man? Why is he taking drugs? Why is he an alcoholic? Didn't David say, I've been rich and I've been poor, and yet I've never seen the righteous beg bread? Well, that's absolutely so. But what about Luke 16, 19 to 31? There was a beggar outside a rich man's house, covered with sores. He's got something wrong with his skin. And these two gentlemen die, the beggar and the rich man. They're both going to the ground. One is saved, one isn't. And to the shock of the Jews that heard that account, the rich man was lost. And the poor man, covered with sores, scars, was saved. Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19. Look at 19. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Second coming. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him that with which he deceived them that have received the mark of the beast and them that worship the image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Antichrist and false prophet. And the remnants were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. Which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Messiah comes back on a horse. He's got a sword, sword of the Lord, going back to the rod of God. And when he comes back, he's angry. He comes back as the son of David to rule and reign, the kingdom of heaven. And here he's going to deal with the remnants that are affiliated to false prophet Antichrist. If you will, the remnant of the Amalekites. Go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 17, 13 again. And Joshua, meaning Jesus, discomforted Amalek. Enemies of Israel, and for the future, enemies of Israel again, being the false prophets and the Antichrist. And his people, those that are affiliated to Antichrist and the false prophet, with the edge of the sword. So Joshua has a literal sword, Old Testament. Jesus, for now, has a spiritual sword, being the word of God. Right now, he's not going around killing anybody. At any time, under any circumstances. But when he comes back, Revelation 19, and we just read it, he's got a literal sword and he's on a literal horse. So therefore, Joshua, Exodus 17, is a picture of Jesus, Revelation 19. Jesus comes back, he's going to fight. We come back with him, incidentally, on horses. Not necessarily to fight, 
although some think we will, but more likely to see what is going on. But again, 13, And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. You were told to put your flesh to death. You were told to crucify the old man. You were told to pick up your cross each and every day. You were told to renew your mind each and every day. Now, let me say this. When I think about that poor chap from Manchester, he told me he's from Leeds. He told me he's been in Manchester since January. And like I say, he's a drug addict. He's an alcoholic. He's homeless. He told me a few things. He said, well, two nights ago, I was trying to sleep. And these two gentlemen wearing suits and ties, of all things, came over to me in the early hours of the morning and stabbed me. And I said to him, they probably have come out of a nightclub, high on drugs, alcohol, who knows what. Wanted to get a kick and decided to give you a good kicking. But the more I think about this chap, the more I'm convinced that what's probably happened is he was a drug addict. He got saved, went to Bible school, went to Spain, did two years missionary work, came back to England. His parents died. He couldn't handle it. He told me he's got siblings and they don't want to know him. I guess they perhaps blame him for his parents' death. Who knows? And with the death of his parents, with his siblings disowning him, he couldn't handle it. And bit by bit, he started to backslide. And now he is homeless, begging on the streets, a drug addict and an alcoholic. But I go back to Luke 16, 19 to 31. And I again remind you of the beggar who was just that, a beggar, covered in scars. But he was saved. I'll give you one more reference. If you think of that account from uh, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, you got, from memory, around 20 sins. Sins of the flesh, going back to crucify the old man, put on the new man. And from Galatians chapter 5, one of the sins that Paul speaks about is drug addiction. Now, why would he put that in there if a saved person couldn't become a drug addict? Not just the heavy stuff. You can be hooked on prescribed medication. I mean, you know, we discussed this some weeks ago. In fact, it's some months ago now when we went through Second Corinthians. So, yes, I'm going to say this, that as far as I'm concerned, it's quite possible that he is saved. I don't know this man, only met him once. And it's quite possible that he's gone back into his old way of life. And if he doesn't get out of it, and if he remains a drunk and a drug addict, there's a chance he will lose his millennial inheritance. So these verses, once again, from Exodus chapter 17, have a twofold application. Number one, Moses is fighting on behalf of Israel. Messiah is fighting on behalf of the church. And yet, strictly speaking, the term Messiah means the anointed one. The term Messiah is in reference to Israel, not the church. When it says over in Isaiah chapter 9 how the Lord is the everlasting Father, that is referring to his relationship to Israel, not to the triune Godhead. Jesus Christ is not God the Father. That's a dangerous heresy. But he's Israel's father. In the Gospels, on two occasions, the Lord would say to a Jewish woman and a Jewish man, Son, daughter. And he would say to the apostles, children. And you see, Jesus Christ is obviously offering himself as Israel's everlasting father. Not God the Father. The second strand of this, of course, is in reference to those of us which are saved, putting our flesh to death. It's as simple as that. Look at 11 again. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Keep your hand there and go to 1 Timothy. So it's scripture with scripture. There's no other way to interpret the Bible. I know a good number of Christians today don't want to study the Bible anymore. They go on to YouTube and they watch their favorite preachers or they go to churches, listen to their favorite pastors, and they very rarely question their pastors. And I'll say this as well, that 
people that go to church buildings on a regular basis or listen to their favourite evangelists on a regular basis will almost never scrutinise such gentlemen. And yet, if you are a typical YouTuber like myself, you are scrutinised. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but please be consistent. If you're going to scrutinise those of us which are online, scrutinise your pastors, scrutinise your evangelists. And if you are a Catholic, scrutinise your priests. First Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In the context, worship. In the context, get your hands up in the air, give the Lord praise and glory. You might want to say, Alleluia, praise the Lord. You might want to get on your knees and raise up your hands and give him thanks for your salvation. Give him thanks for being able to open your mouth. It's always a great blessing for me, and also for Patrick, I know, when we go into the streets and speak to people. You never know who's going to come around that corner. I didn't think in a hundred years I'd be a missionary who's now a drunk and a drug addict. Of course, I know what the Lordship Salvation people would say. He's not saved. He's not one of the Lord's people. God's people don't live like that. God's people shouldn't live like that. Listen, God's people shouldn't live like that. But that doesn't mean that God's people can't or won't live like that. What does Paul say? Make that Peter. Peter, uh, Peter told you very clearly in his epistle. He said, if you are a Christian, don't suffer as an evildoer, a busybody, or a murderer. Why would he say that? If it wasn't possible for somebody who was saved to really stray from the Savior. Go back to Exodus chapter 17, please. So again, you've got Moses, a good type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses over his people, Old Testament. Messiah over his people for the New Testament. You've got Moses working with Joshua. Joshua is a type of God the Son. Moses is a type of God the Father. You've got two lieutenants, like Aaron and Hur, working very closely with Moses. We could suggest this. We could suggest that one of the, or the two lieutenants working closely with Moses in the Old Testament could be John and also Paul. Paul and John, John and Paul wrote most of the New Testament. It's fascinating to me when I think of Simon Peter, the so-called first pope. He wrote only two epistles. He's mentioned several times in the book of Acts and after chapter 10 from memory. He's not mentioned again, apart from a few verses from chapter 15 when they have the council in Jerusalem. So the similarities are numerous. So many to pick out. 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses... Type of God the Father, Joshua, type of God the Son, write, write, write this, write that. All scripture is inspired of God. Jesus Christ is the word of God in a sense of being eternal. Going back to Micah 5.2, the eternal word of God found three places. John, 1 John, Revelation, Almighty God is also the written word of God. So again, you've got Jesus Christ, the living, eternal word of God. And Jesus Christ, or the Word of God, being the written, eternal Word of God. Two words of God, written and living. Jesus Christ and the actual text of itself, or text itself. The Lord, triune Lord, said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Let Joshua hear this, because he's going to follow you. We could suggest this, we could suggest that Joshua succeeds Moses, and of course he certainly would do. Uh, in a sense, Paul continues the ministry of the Messiah, and he certainly does. Of course, the Messiah's ministry was a one-off, going back to what I said some weeks ago, how there's no successor to the priestly tribe of Melchizedek, or the Aaronic priesthood, 
both are completed, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So if Amalek is a picture of the old nature, then we are still dealing with it each and every day. I'm not sure what your weaknesses are. I'm sure you have many weaknesses. You may not want to broadcast uh, such weaknesses. That's fair enough. You were told from the book of James to confess your faults to each other, not your sins. You were told from 1 John chapter 1 to not become guilty of saying you haven't sinned in the presence of other people. Going back to these smug, sanctimonious, lordship, salvation people. And most of those people don't live in the real world. Don't know what it's like to live in the real world. Have come from very privileged backgrounds. Have never really been put through the mill. And yet this chap that I spoke to a few days ago, he's been through it. He's been through it and he's still going through it. And I said to him, listen, my friend, you told me you beat drugs once. You told me you've been dry for four and a half years. You can beat it again. You can beat it again if you want to. And after he finished his meal, he came out of the place in question, very emotional. And he was crying and he was asking me to do this and doing that uh, and do that for him. I said, look, I can't do this for you. I'm not a social worker. I can't do any more for you. There are groups in Manchester that take care of the homeless. They won't preach the gospel to them. We will. They'll feed them. They'll clothe them. They'll arrange for them to have haircuts, literally, and medical checkups. Dentists will sometimes uh, visit these people. Doctors will sometimes visit these people. But very rare, very rarely, will they preach the gospel to such people. And he said to me, well, I'm going to die in the streets probably. And I said, no, you won't. You're a young guy. If you really want to beat it, you can. But he too has to put Amalek to death. He has to put Amalek to death with the sword, being the word of God, of course. 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So the altar is literal, obviously. But for today, the altar is in our hearts. You were told from the Gospel of Matthew to go into your closet, pray to your father who is in seek or who is in a secret place, and he sees you praying, and he rewards you openly. You're told to commit all of your cares and thoughts to the Lord because he cares for you. You were told you could do all things through Christ which strengthens you. This is a paradox of being a Christian in the 21st century especially. And I, I don't know how else to really put this. I mean, if you are saved... According to the Apostle Paul, you can do anything. According to the Apostle Paul, Almighty God won't tempt you beyond what you can endure. According to the Apostle Paul, he's going to give you everything that you possibly could need. And yet at the same time, you've got a chap like this out on his ear, struggling. You've got the beggar outside the house of the rich man. You've got Christians all over the world that have really gone through it. And are going through it right now. You say, what's going on? Well, in a nutshell, they're not walking with the Lord. They've neglected their relationship, their walk with the lord they are saved of course but due to reasons that we don't always understand they have succumbed to the flesh so two strands to the 17th chapter of the book of exodus you've got these personal battles and you've got these priestly battles you've got messiah you've got moses in a person of a priest fighting our battles going to the cross and back overcoming death for us going into the ground and setting captivity captive. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Again, we call this substitutionary atonement, but behind every great battle that takes place on our behalf, could be Moses, Old Testament, could be Messiah, New Testament, we have to also fight our own battles. 
we have to do this ourselves. We can't expect God to do everything for us. I gave you the text from 1 Timothy 2.8, how men should pray everywhere, lifting up their hands without wrath and doubting. Worship the Lord. Be victorious. Claim the crowns. Claim the victory. Paul told you from 1 Corinthians how the man of God should be temperate in all things. Because if you want to run a race, you want to be the first past the line, obviously. You don't want to be the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth. You want to come first. You want to pick up the final crown or the initial crown and become victorious. So allow me to say this and I will close. Just 16 verses, but as always, loaded with a lot of symbolism. And uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, Revelation 19, he comes back like Joshua. In fact, here's a little thing you may want to consider if you are looking to uh, have a study sometime. Take the time to read Joshua, the entire book of Joshua. Joshua will kill people left, right and centre. Samuel would kill people left, right and centre. In fact, Saul, Israel's first king, failed the Lord. He was told to wipe out every man, woman and child. He failed to do that. And of course, you know what happened. Samuel, a true prophet of the Lord, put such people to death. When the Messiah comes back, Psalm 110, he too will kill those that follow the Antichrist and the false prophet. And he, he will also take the false prophet and the beast and put them into the lake of fire. Yeah. And also note, it says after a thousand years, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, is allowed out of hell. He's not burnt up. He's still alive. He's still conscious. He's been burning for 1,000 years. There's no annihilation. And during our trip to Manchester, I saw Jehovah's Witnesses, three, four, five groups spread out, young people <clears throat> trying to get people to join their religion. It always puzzles me when I think about the Jehovah's Witnesses because if you say to them, well, what happens if I'm not a JW? What happens if I remain as I am? Like Balaam, for example or Judas Iscariot, or Pharaoh, for example, or Simon the Sorcerer, or this person or that person. What happens to me when I die? And they say this, well, you are annihilated. You go to sleep, and you don't wake up. And you know what? If I wasn't a saved man, i say, that's good for me. I'm more than happy for that. There's no consequences for not being a JW. But if you're not a Christian, the consequences are awful. Everlasting death, shame and torment, lake of fire. And like I say, after 1,000 years of burning, the devil is allowed out. He gathers the nations and they march against Jerusalem. And the Lord again intervenes and deals with such people. So like I say, 16 verses, and this has been week number 45. We are now uh, approaching the 27th hour. You may be uh, interested to know. And these verses are very practical, dealing with the old nature, put it down. The new nature, renew your mind, be victorious. But ultimately, it's about Moses. It's about Messiah. It's about Israel. It's about the church. And also Amalek is a picture of the devil. It says he goes around like a roaring lion, lion seeking to devour whom he will. And you're also told to resist the devil steadfast and he will flee from you. But unfortunately, many times we embrace the devil. Many times we enjoy uh, sin like junk food and junk food like sin is very addictive and I'm sure that chap that I saw in Manchester this week probably thought he could deal with the loss of his parents started with perhaps a bit of tobacco a bit of alcohol and it progressed to this it progressed to that and eventually to his shock and probably shame as well he was homeless and is homeless he's now a drug addict 
and also an alcoholic. And if he doesn't turn back to the Lord, Amalek will get a hold of him. Amalek will destroy him. Amalek will destroy his body. And he will arrive at the judgment seat. No crowns, no rewards. He will arrive as a sorry son of God, but nothing to show for his life. But if he turns his life around, if he gets out of the drug, drink, and homeless situation and gets back on his feet and returns to missionary work, not necessarily in Spain, but in Britain. We need those people here. The Lord could and would restore him, put him back on his feet, and he will move. He will roll for the Lord, as they say, and hopefully by the grace of God, he will get back on his feet and get people saved, and the Lord will bless him mightily.